Hey there, story fans. There's still time for you to fill out the short second story survey and win some awesome second story swag. This survey helps us focus our programming and fundraising efforts in the coming year, so give us a hand and share your story. You can find a link to the survey at our website, secondstory.com. The survey runs live all throughout March. Don't delay. This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. Every year, as spring begins to melt away the harsh Chicago winter, Second Story joins forces with the Story Week Festival of Writers, hosted by Columbia College Chicago, to present an amazing evening of stories and live music from some of the most dynamic storytellers in the city. This year, the Harold Washington Trio will accompany four stories that will turn you on your head. From a mother led away in handcuffs in front of her daughters, to a woman grappling with the consequences of a powerful lie, these stories at Story Week will examine the choices we make when there is no other choice. Today, on the Second Story Podcast, we bring you two stories from the last two Story Week and Second Story collaborations, presenting a slice of one of our favorite annual performances. Our first story today is from Story Week 2012, from a man of many talents. He's been a football player and a florist, thrown engine blocks, built dune retaining walls, rodeo trained on forklifts, harvested Christmas trees, shot commercials and music videos, and survived an earthquake, a tropical storm, and Michigan. This story features live music from Seeking Wonderland and was curated by Megan Steelstra. With his story titled, Offense to the Queen, Second Story proudly presents, from Story Week 2012, Devin Polderman. I'm starting in this story, imagine yourselves airborne, because I'm being carried bodily by six large men who plan to throw me out the front door. They succeed, and I go skidding across the wintry pavement, which hurts if you have never done it. When I finally roll to a stop and lift my head, I see the bouncers who tossed me packing the doorway, a crowd bunching around them to try and catch a glimpse. So now I'm famous. Then they shut the door. Well, that I thought was just rude. So I crawl off the pavement and charge them. And by the time I get there, the door's locked, of course. So I do the next best thing, and I put my hand through it. This one right here. That's where most of the blood on this night will come from. Now, about 15 minutes before all of this nonsense, a band had been playing in that bar. They were shitty. And during the middle of one of their shitty songs... I took it upon myself to jump up on the stage and tell them how shitty I thought they were. The singer disagreed. So I sized him up, and I took a terrible swing. I could hardly stand. And I missed by a mile and staggered. He bunched himself, crow-hopped, and sunk his fist deep into my eye. And I flew off the stage, crashing to the tables. I'm big then, about 275 pounds. So it was a terrible mess. Bouncers swarmed me and we quickly degenerate into a cartoon of swinging arms and legs with me at the middle of it. That's what led to me being littered out of this place. So I'm outside now and I am just fucking furious. And I'm using this hand to shatter their front door. 
probably the only thing I was capable of beating up right then. It was glass, half inch thick and laced with security wire, but I went through it like fog. You'd have thought I was a zombie from the movies, the easy work I made of that door. The bouncers start to repel me again, and then the Mounties arrive. Now I'm going to interlude right here. (laughs) Everything I've said thus far is true. Or at least I think it's true. Because I believe the people who told me that it happened. I don't actually remember any of it. I do have scars from that door. And scars make a story more legitimate. But as a point of context, and to make sure I know who here here is on Team Polderman, let me ask you all a few questions. Who here has been kicked out of, say, a party? Who's been kicked out of a bar? Who's been kicked out of a city? Who's been kicked out of a state? Who's been kicked out of a country? I know at least a couple people here have. I've left this country just once as an adult. The term adult here is conscribed by the legal definition in that I was over 18. I was 19. Dave and Kyle and I were out drinking in a car somewhere on Christmas Eve because we're the nutnucks who can't even go a holiday night without getting shithoused. And don't worry about the car part. This was 1990, and anyone who tells you they didn't drink and drive back then is probably lying. Shit, I was named Michigan's finest drunk driver three years running. When we couldn't find a party, we'd cruise country roads with a quarter barrel in the back seat of my car, three or four or five of us pulling off it until the tap spit foam. The scarring on my liver is a road map of Kalamazoo County. So the three of us, we're out doing our thing, and we come up with a great idea, because that's what we do when we drink. We decided we would road trip to Windsor, Canada, just over the bridge from Detroit. Now, Windsor has a certain reputation. Anybody here know it? That's right, strip clubs. It was a reputation well-founded, I'm happy to report. And I don't say that for nothing. I'd been visiting Titty Bar since I was 16. This is back when you could still find an older lookalike for an ID that worked. My name was Dean Allen Bruchauber. Between Dean and the bosses at my second job, I knew my way around. So then, why a Canadian titty bar? We did it for science. Unlike Kalamazoo, the bars there were full nude, we knew. So we thought we had a duty to see what could be learned. Maybe Canadian pussy was blue. Could it divine water? Hum, O Canada? Grant wishes? Women still had pubic hair in those days, so everything was on the table. The stories were true. Lap dances were full touch, and we could compare fingers after each one. On the stage, girls popped ping pong balls and huffed out matches. And they were beautiful women, too. Not the skull draggers who were working our Kalamazoo joints. Now, full disclosure here. I have met a lot of people since that time with a lot more points of view than me and my two friends had that night. Those people include my wife and my two daughters. 
So I'm serious when I say apologies. But fake apologies, too. Because I really don't regret that night. Or the nights before it. Or the ones after it. That kind of fun makes up the fondest memory my old fondest memories my old friends and I retell when our wives are in a different room. Or when the kids are out back in the sandbox. That night, the three of us had outsmarted everyone ever. Had everything not gotten so shit up, I can't imagine our encore. Probably would have cured cancer. Instead, we had our first bad idea. After our second or third titty bar, we decided to find actual women we can fuck for free. So we go to a metal club. Rum Runners, I think it was called, which is a really sissy name for a metal joint. This is where my memory starts to go fuzzy. The bar tab the cops gave me the next day from just that place listed 20 beers and 20 shots of ouzo. And I was told I wasn't sharing, so that might have played a role in my memory. Thankfully, though, my liver was the strongest muscle in my body. At any rate, now we're back to the broken door in the Mounties. The first cop that rushes me, I turn into him with a punch that catches him right on the button. And he goes down like a sack full of Jerry Coonies. Much better than that bullshit I tried inside with that so-called singer. But the only thing dumber than hitting a bouncer is hitting a cop. Even a Canadian one. Within moments, I'm reduced to a big, dumb, drunk punching bag. And this is where my memory starts to return, at least in bits. There's this sliver of memory where I'm lying on the ground, hands cuffed in front of my back, and some titan cop sitting on top of me and beating on my head. For what it's worth, I don't hold it against them. I had it coming. But being hit in the back of the head while defenseless by someone who knows how to punch, that hurts a lot. I could feel the eggs on my head for the next two weeks. I've wondered how his hand felt after, but I'm not sure that he used his hand. If he did, more power to him. There's a bit memory where I'm in the back of the paddy wagon, alone, cuffed and shackled. My friend Dave, who's much bigger than me, if you haven't ever visited Southwest Michigan, you really should, it's beautiful. But if you have, you know that Dutch blood runs strong there and that we are, in general, a race of giants. Dave is trying to climb into the paddy wagon to talk to me, but he can't get in because of the cops. And seeing him being bullied makes me realize how big these night shift meat squad motherfuckers really are. Just huge, strong guys who must not have been able to skate. Dave doesn't retaliate because he's not as dumb as me, and he vanishes back into the throng. The next flash of memory, I'm in a Canadian jail. I'm still drunk, still an asshole, trying to fight back in my cuffs and leg irons and calling them every derivation of dirty, rotten fucking Canuck I can dream up because they keep wrestling me around, three or four to one, and taking turns slugging me. In jail, where no one can see you but cops, they get to be very openly enthusiastic. And again, I still don't necessarily blame them for anything they've done to me at this point. Hell, most of you would have lined up for a free shot on me. And you would have been right to do so, especially if you're Canadian. But because I have no recollection of how I got here, all I can do is wince and wonder, why is this happening to me? Eventually, I calm down enough so that they can cart me to the hospital for stitches. The doctor sutures up my hand, okay. 
And once I'm all bandaged up, they haul me back to jail. The cops are starting to let off a bit since I'm cowed and sobering and thus more agreeable. And honestly, I think this may have disappointed them as they've been having so much fun. But they relent and they lock me up. Jail is stark. Fluorescent lights, concrete, white bars, cement cots. I'm humble now, bandaged, swollen, hand and face and head. One of my eyes is fully closed, the other one half so. I'm in solitary. Apparently, I'm unfit for the general criminal, criminal population. I ask to make a phone call. They say yes. They lead me, again in cuffs and leg irons, to a payphone. Somehow I have changed for it and make a call to the only number I can remember at the time, which is my folks. <laughs> Do you remember the time your mom thought you were crashing at a friend's house a couple of neighborhoods over, and you called her at 3 a.m. to tell her that you were in an out-of-country jail arrested for fighting cops? <laughs> you don't remember that? That was a, that was a great call. As you talk to your mom, you imagine that she's your brooding father for a moment and are immediately glad that she's not. But in the middle of it, with three or four cops eyeballing you and your mom understandably hysterical with this just complete nonsense you're trying to explain, you finally just cut her off and say, please, just get me out of here. I don't want them to beat me again. <laughs> well, beat was the magic word, I'm sure. And now we get to the parts I think I didn't deserve. You remember when the cops dragged you from the phone, stripped you naked, then cuffed you back up, including the leg irons? I do. Does your mom remember hearing you say, no, please don't hit me again, before some cop clicked the payphone lever? Mine does. Comes up every Thanksgiving. <laughs> and do you remember being hit with clubs while you're sitting there locked up and naked? Do you remember when a cop uncuffed you so that he could pull out your hand and smash open the fresh stitches with his club? The blood running down your arm and body and dripping in the floor when you tried to shield yourself from the next blow? Remember how pissed they got that you tried to protect yourself? Well, good for you if you don't. It's not a memory I tell my little girls. I do, however, look forward to the day I get to tell it to their boyfriends in great detail. <laughs> <clears throat> So I get the dog shit beat out of me for at least a third time that night, this time adding bruised ribs to the collection of injuries that were never a part of this plan. And then recuffed for a return trip to the hospital. They tell the doctor I did it to myself, so he's pissed, and angry stitches hurt more than regular ones, and then jail again. In the morning, I wake up, still in solitary, to the sight of Dave, with a black eye and a very sour look for me being led into the community tank across from my cell. Kyle had stuck to the plan and picked up a girl, cashing in on my celebrity, I learned later. <laughs> I sit up, and the pain throughout my body and head is stunning. If pain is light, I am a supernova. An hour or so later, they deem me fit for the general drunk tank, which faces the solitary cells from the other side of the walkway. It's me, Dave, a couple of kids caught pissing in public, and a car thief who knows all the cops by name who's trading stories with some drug runner across the way in solitary. I'm just coated in blood, and I beat up a cop, so I'm something of a hero, even to the car thief and the mule, though I would recommend finding any other way that you can to make yourself feel, feel heroic. 
They feed us a carton of warm milk and a gas station cheeseburger that I can't chew because my jaw is so swollen. Anywhere I stand or sit or lie down is cement when my whole aching body is sobbing for pillows. Dave eventually warms back up to me, if only so we can distinguish ourselves from the car thief and the mule we're now associated with, and we eventually start making jokes. The pros teach us how to slide cigarettes pack, cigarette packs across the floor from our pen to the solitary cells on the other side. There were a lot of quiet stretches, too. Natural lulls when everyone there just took some time to think. I really could have used a good lull a few, a few hours ago, you know? But instead, I get it in jail too late. So now I have time to think that maybe I shouldn't do shots in bars anymore. And I didn't for over 10 years. That maybe I shouldn't punch cops. And you'd think I'd already, I would have already known that. That maybe I should have thought of some of this shit before leaving home. Some pretty simple limits for the evening. Look, I'm still mostly a bad habit with legs. Bad habits can't be fully bled out of you. They can only be managed. But when you don't, well, sometimes you go out to have fun and it's fun and sometimes it's dull and sometimes clearly it's neither one of those and you end up with a bail sheet mine is on pink flimsy almost tissuey paper a kind of keepsake that suggests I've been out flitting around with pixies all night I still have it it says that I'm banned for that country, from that country for criminal mischief which makes me laugh like I'm some kind of Dennis the Menace for police assault which I'm still kind of proud of, actually. And for offense to the queen, which is just plain silly. As far as I can remember, she wasn't dancing anywhere we visited that night. So that pink paper just sits lost in a drawer somewhere in my house, largely forgotten. This nice double-stitched scar on my hand, however, that's pretty easy to find. Thanks. What dumb things did you do when you were too far gone to make any intelligent decisions? This story was directed by Second Story Artistic Director Amanda Delheimer Diamond and performed live at Buddy Guys Legends in March of 2012. The following March in 2013, Second Story opened the fifth annual Story Week Festival of Writers with an exciting lineup of four powerful stories. Ames Hawkins blew us out of the water with this beautiful piece of personal identity and discovery. She's a longtime collaborator with Second Story, an instructor at Columbia College Chicago, and we are super excited to share her work with you today. With her story titled, The Unusual Bathroom Experience, Second Story proudly presents Ames Hawkins. Folks about my age who grew up in eastern Michigan usually agree that there was one super cool thing about going to Hudson's, you know, like Macy's or Marshall Fields, for lunch with your mom. The chocolate milk. It came in a little tiny pitcher, and you got to pour it all by yourself into a small glass, the kind usually reserved for freshly squeezed orange juice. My brother was the kind of kid who'd pour it in all at once, slam it, and ask for more. I would pour it in sips at a time, doing what I could to draw out the experience and, 
yeah, milk it for all it was worth. I didn't think about it then, but my grown-up self knows that the picture totally went with the linen tablecloths, the fabric, rather than pleather-covered seats. And I now understand that the mom type of the day would have taken kids to such a place for lunch because it gave her a break, made her feel fancy, and not so oppressed or overwhelmed by the day-in, day-out, super not-at-all-glamorous work of childcare. Despite the family decor, fancy decor, one didn't need to dress up to be there. I know for sure that my most memorable day at Hudson's, sometime when I was five or six, I was wearing Oshkoshes. You know, Oshkosh bagosh, the blue and white striped train conductor overalls. This was my favorite outfit when I was small, an outfit I had chosen years before as a kind of personal uniform. According to my mom, and I certainly don't remember, one day when I was about 18 months old, she went to get me dressed. Apparently, I took one look at the dress, a garment I had worn plenty of times before, and for some reason decided not anymore. I threw myself onto the carpeting and in her words went stiff as a board. I didn't exactly cry or throw a fit, I just made it impossible for her to get the dress over my head and my arms into the sleeves. She didn't know what to do, so she asked if I wanted to wear something different and touched all the dresses, asking maybe I wanted another color, moving through the closet, until she got to the Oshkoshes. When she touched those, I got up and got dressed. If it was a special occasion, the overalls were gussied up with patent leather Mary Janes and a barrette. Lunch at Hudson's was special, but not an occasion, so I would have been wearing blue canvas keds and allowed to wear my 70s short shag haircut frame my face, same as my brother's. For all these reasons, the picture, the atmosphere, the special time with mom, Hudson's was a magical place. A space where I had agency over my own beverage. This was a place I felt powerful and my mom felt at ease. And in the 1970s, as long as there wasn't a chance of being scooped up by a stranger in a panel van, you were usually damned safe. It's definitely a place I would have been allowed to go to the bathroom alone. And when I think about this particular day, I have the sense it would not have been my first solo flight to the loo, though it will become the most memorable toilet trip of my young life. In order to get to the bathrooms, you took a right down a 20-foot hallway and a little left, and there were two cream-colored doors. In my memory, the lights were dim, not the brightly lit hallway areas of the department store. I started reading at the age of three, so there was absolutely no confusion on my part as to which door I would choose. Ladies. I'd been peeing without adult assistance for, you know, like three years now. I knew how to successfully click the overall, the overall fastener over my bib rivets, on my Oshkoshes. I was short, but I could reach the toilet paper without having to leave the seat, and I could reach the sink without having to jump on the counter. I had this. I had this until a woman who saw me standing there in the bathroom started to yell at me, hey, little boy. What are you doing in here? You are in the wrong bathroom. Get out. I had no idea who she was talking to. And then it dawned on me, she was yelling at me. She was this 50 or 60 year old woman, definitely wearing a dress, hair in an updo. It's gray or maybe speckled, frosted old lady hair. And she's, well, somehow she's Polish, which actually lets me know that I've replaced this ghost of my lavatory past with the most recent image of a woman who aggressively scolded me and accused me of being in the wrong bathroom. To try and figure this out, yeah, it confuses me too. I focus and try to see the whole scene. 
but my memory will not stand still. One minute, I'm looking at kindergartner me, pretty much frozen in place, the way most kids get when adults unleash on them. Then I'm standing in the hallway, ashamed, afraid, staring at the white laces in my blue shoes. At first, I can barely move. Then I go back to the table. I don't know what to say, how to explain it, so I don't tell my mom. All I know is I want to go home. This is the first time I'm accosted by a woman, verbally accosted by a woman who decides I'm in the wrong bathroom, but it's not the last. Now understand, in the more than 30 years that will transpire between bathroom events notable for their violent verbal assault, I'd estimate that someone says something regarding my presence in or near entry of a woman's bathroom on average of about once every couple months. Given these encounters do not actually begin until I come out, after I give up skirt wearing around the age of 25 and don't intensify until my early 30s, when I fully embrace my inner dandy and love of ties, I'd have to estimate the number of toilet interactions regarding my gender somewhere between 80 and 100 times. Now, anyone who thinks this is terrible or horrible or somehow way outside of what you might understand as normal experience, let me put this into perspective. Based upon many of the conversations I've had with women, my partner and daughters included, these bath bathroom callouts aren't so different from cat calls, either in frequency or impact. Mostly unwanted, they're a part of life, a kind of annoyance, something we have to deal with because somebody else notes our gender, assumes sexual desire, decides, decides they have the right, practically a duty, to make some kind of remark. I've also noted the reactions fall into one of two categories. There's the, hey, let me warn you, jovial call out, usually from younger males. Something like, yo dude, wrong one. Prior to or just upon bathroom entry, it's quite easy to address their attempt at friendly public service and I can stick my head back out the door and genuinely smile and say something like, oh, I'm good man, but thanks. <laughs> sometimes I apologize and sometimes they just smile, but rarely is there any anger or shame or difficulty for either of us. As I age, young male concern for my bathroom choice has dropped off significantly. What is picked up are the gasps, looks of absolute terror, and physical backstepping once I'm inside the woman's room. I found out it will usually occur when a woman is exiting her stall, and because I'm moving to hers, or one beyond hers, or the door and walking in my usual brisk manner, she processes me as a male assailant who has literally come out of nowhere. To these women, I've learned to say, you're okay. I watch them drop their shoulders, relax, and proceed to the sink to wash their hands. Sometimes a woman will say something like, hey, you're in the wrong room. Or even more interestingly, did I make a mistake? And always, I simply say something reassuring and allow my female enough range of voice to let them know they're okay, they're safe, and we have all made the right potty choice. <laughs> What is unusual is an all-out attack. So back to the image of the Polish woman. I'm in my late 30s attending the rehearsal dinner for my sister-in-law's wedding. She's since divorced, so I feel totally cool about telling you that I was less than thrilled with the location to begin with. <laughs> the choice of her then early 20s, now ex-husband, the Jolly Inn. Now, anyone know the Jolly Inn? The Polish smorgasbord restaurant on Irving Park near Narragansett? 
Now, I'm not here to dis pierogi or guamki or what have you, but I'm definitely not a fan of the buffet, the super long trough of steaming food and metal trays scooped at and picked through by table after table of slow-moving humans. The place is full of people I identify as the sort who would be just as pissed about the fact that I do not weed and feed or regularly mow my lawn as their sure homosexuality is a sin. I look around at the multi-leveled maze of tables, chairs, the confident white Polish-speaking faces, and I don't fit in for at least three reasons. One, I'm wearing a well-coordinated shirt and tie, and it's not Sunday. Two, I look French. I know because it's a language I'm addressed in in New York City and abroad. And three, I do not have enough facial, fa facial hair here to pass. I feel, well, I feel danger but I'm also protected by the at least half Polish descent extended family I'm a part of here. People who don't speak Polish, but who get spoken to in Polish because they look right. So I go through the line, fill my plate with slabs of meat and potatoes in at least three forms, and settle into a booth and decide, I'm not here for me, I'm here for the bride-to-be and the night will go by and I'll never think about it again. But then, I need to pee. If we were anywhere near leaving, I might have held it, but we were only halfway through the meal. I was planning on getting another beer. So even though I re really didn't want to get up and walk through the restaurant, I went to the bathroom. This time it was I who was leaving my stall. As then I walked to the sink, a woman standing in line looked right at me, somehow seemed to suck her deep-set eyes even further back into her skull and set them aflame. I don't know Polish, but I knew exactly what she was saying to me. What are you doing here? You are in the wrong bathroom. Get out now. My heart stopped for two beats. When it resumed, it was beating more than double time. Think, think, oh yeah, oh yeah, you don't know Polish, but let her hear you. Let her know under your clothes you are female. I took a breath and said, it's okay, I'm supposed to be here, and bravely walked to the sink. This is where things should have ended, where they had in all of my experiences since Hudson's ended, but not this time. She stepped to my right, and the woman who'd been in behind her in line, her, likely her sister or cousin or something, stepped around to my left. As I washed my hands, the two of them engaged in a heated exchange about me over my head. Now, they were no longer screaming at the young man in the wrong bathroom. They were using me and my inability to speak Polish to voice aloud their homophobic thoughts and their hatred of queers. And let me tell you something. One need not be fluent in any language in order to understand the vocabulary of discrimination and the syntax of humiliation. My first reaction, I wanted the fuck out of there. I wanted to run and hide, and I could feel that petrified little kid standing in the hall, unable to tell her mom, maybe with enough power to pour milk, but not enough power to determine departure. Unlike when I was a kid, I could have gotten into a car and split. But this time, I knew I was too old for that shit too classy to go to the to bar and ask for a giant pitcher of chocolate milk and then go to the booth where those old women were sitting and pour the light brown liquid onto their calico cat hairdos, watch it drip from their noses and ears and bead up on their polyester blouses and see how long it would take for them to scream, for their geriatric husbands to pound on me. How much longer then would it be for the men I was with to jump up, enter the fray, and for us all to be kicked out together, bloodied and bolstered by a victory well won? But I am mature, <laughs> classy, and graceful. 
So all I did, even as I fantasized about blood bruising and chocolate milk, was return to my seat and not order another beer. I told my partner Karine about it in a quick whisper at the table and might have mentioned it to my eldest daughter, but I downplayed the event. They responded as my behavior prompted them to. I reacted as though it were the usual bathroom encounter, an incident to be shrugged off and left there in the Jolly Inn, a moment to become as irrelevant and forgettable as the overcooked green beans turning gray in the buffet. But that does not mean I have forgotten. And my revenge is annoying that now there's the chance that neither will you. Where did you find or confirm your voice and identity? This story was curated by Megan Steelstra with performance direction from Jessica Kanish and live music from Seeking Wonderland. Story Week is one of our favorite annual performances, and Story Week 2014 will be performing at Martyrs in Lincoln Square on March 16th. We'll explore the theme of diverse city, urban stories, and feature four of the most dynamic storytellers to grace the second story stage. Admission to the event is free, but get there early because space fills up. For more information, visit us at secondstory.com or for more information on Story Week, visit column.edu slash storyweek. We can't wait to see you there. You can always reach me for a comment on this or any other Second Story podcast at ozzy at secondstory.com. Be sure to follow Second Story on Twitter at Second Story or on Instagram at Second Story Chicago to get behind the scenes of our curation process. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes so more listeners can find and hear this work. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen, with special thanks to Sherry Pentamone and C.P. Chang. We share our stories, so you'll share yours. Now go out and knock them dead with story power. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story.